We've been, um, we've been working our way the last seven weeks through this letter that James wrote to churches scattered throughout the Middle East. Not to a particular church, not to a particular town, not to a particular group of people, but in general to Christians, which means in general to us. And one of the things you notice about this letter to James, I hope, is that James has the heart of a pastor, but oftentimes the voice of a prophet. He has um, the heart of a pastor who only wants the best for the people in these churches to whom he is writing. He only wants us to grow in our maturity, to become more like Jesus, to be his shining light and living water, as we say here, And sometimes that requires a prophetic voice, which is confrontational and difficult and makes us look at things and deal with things um, that we'd rather not think about or deal with. But it's going to push us toward being more like Jesus. And this morning, he continues in that vein in the first six verses of um, chapter 5. Now listen. And again, remember, this is a letter that's going to be read in churches. So he's encouraging people to listen to what's being read. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like a fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look. The wages that you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. You rich people. And when you get done reading this, you're going, Whew, man, I'm glad I'm not rich. You know, that's pretty harsh stuff, right? I mean, he isn't very flattering, doesn't have a lot of nice things to say, and we're all kind of dodging the bullet, and we're happy that we aren't rich people. But it would ask the question, right, who are the rich people to whom he's writing? Well, we have to assume that they're people who are members of these churches scattered throughout the Middle East. They're not the general populace. People were going to take this letter from James and read it out in the public square and point their fingers at non-believers. These are upstanding, good, uh, active members of congregations to whom he was going to read this, who, some of whom were guilty of this kind of behavior. They were rich people. They were probably landowners because those were the richest people in the first century. It was an agrarian society. The more land you own, the more crops you could grow. The more crops you could grow, the more money you could make. So wealthy landowners had employees. They prepared the soil. They planted the seeds. They cultivated the crops. They did the harvest. They took it to market. They had it sold. And the landowner collected the money and paid his employees, or according to James, didn't always pay their employees, uh, the proud of the profits that they made. It was, it was an economy. It's the way things kind of work. And the wealthiest people, these rich people, were probably landowners. So who is rich in our world today, right? Who would you consider to be rich people? This is a thing that I was wrestling with during the week. And so, well, you know, what do you do when you're looking for information? You go to your computer. And I put in my browser. I, I, I said, well, you know, rich people, how about entertainers? Entertainers are probably rich. Now, let me, let me ask you this. If I was to, to put in the search engine the richest entertainer, the one who made the most money in 2015, and I told you that it was a singer, who would you say it was? The people at 9 o'clock gave names. It's okay to participate. 
What, Michael Jack? The estate of Michael Jackson, Mac. Mac, it's 2016, Mac. Taylor Swift, wrong. You'll never, people couldn't guess this. Katy Perry. Katy Perry. Uh-huh. Oh, you call me a liar? I got this off the internet. I'm also dating a French model. Uh, Katy Perry, 2015, $135 million. Everybody, everybody finds that surprising. Um, now, I can tell you who was second. One Direction. Which isn't really fair, because don't they have to have split that four ways? Right? I mean, they were $130 million. Third, this one surprised me. Garth Brooks, who was older than Michael Jackson's estate. <laughs> Garth Brooks. Taylor Swift was fourth, and of course the Eagles were fifth. Old guys like me singing rock music. There you go. So it's just kind of an interesting, right? Now, all those people, I think the Eagles only earned, and they have to split it five or six ways depending on who shows up on a given date. Um, five or six ways, you know, they only earned like $90 million in 2015. So uh, they'll probably all be on welfare next week. I don't know how they're going to do it. There was an article in last week's uh, Sunday Tribune about um, CEOs of companies in Chicago and what perquisites they get in addition to their salary. One of the, one of the people uh, earned $13.2 million uh, last year as their salary, but they also got a private jet to use whenever they needed to and ground transportation, which usually means either a chauffeured limousine car wherever you needed to go uh, or, you know, a car that's provided for you. And I thought... You know, that makes sense, because if you're only earning $13.2 million, how are you going to buy your own plane tickets and get your own car? I mean, you've got to have somebody else give you that stuff. Uh, so there are other people. Are you familiar with this guy? Uh, Ken Griffin. Ken Griffin is a Chicago guy. He manages the Citadel Hedge Fund Group. And I had to look three times at this, because I, I was startled. Yes, that's right. $1.7 billion in 2015. Not, not million. $1.7 billion. And if you can explain a hedge fund to me, then you'll get 7.7. I mean, it's like, you know, kind of like legalized gambling and legalized robbery. But anyway, you know, and it's not enough because he had an ugly divorce last year and his wife, he and his wife had to fight over their billions of dollars. That's a rich guy, right? $1.7 billion. And this guy, Jim Harbaugh, coaches football at... Well, it was at the University of Michigan, but he coaches football. He makes over $7 million a year to coach football. And my first thought was, why did I ever quit coaching? <laughs> and that was also Becky's first thought. $7 million for, like, drawing X's and O's and yelling at people. I mean, it's really kind of amazing, right? These people are rich people. They're really rich people. But, you know, we, we know that... Being rich and wealth is really all relative, right? I mean, who are you comparing it to? Compared to these people, very few of us are rich, right? Those are the really rich people. But if you start to look at the average household incomes in the area, you'll notice that in Elmhurst, the average household income is $120,000 a year. In uh, Oakbrook, of course, is 177, so they're rich relative to people who live in Elmhurst. Now, I don't want to start a war here. If you're from Oakbrook, just keep it on the down low. Villa Park, $68,000 a year. Lombard, $69,000. So the people in Villa Park think the people who live in Lombard are rich because that's that $1,000 difference. The average U.S. household income is $51,000 a year. 
The average city of Chicago household income is $38,000 a year. Now, if being wealthy is all relative, all of us are rich. <laughs> because by virtue of living in a suburb, suburban Cook County or DuPage County, which is one of the richest counties in the United States, compared to the $38,000 of average income in the city of Chicago, any of those cities, we would be considered rich. Now, we're also part of a global society, right? That's the big thing. We're part of a global, we're not part of just the United States, we're part of a global society. How do we measure up in a global society? The United States average income is 51000 I said earlier. In India, the average household income per year is $1,500. In Haiti, it's $1,100. In Uganda, it's $591. Average household income per year. Now, by virtue of those statistics, compared to the rest of the world, I'm going to leap out on the edge and say that everybody in this room is rich. Very few of us are trying to live off of $591. The average Chicago income is $38,000. The average American income is $51,000. In the western suburbs, it's much more than that. So we are these rich people about whom James is writing, about whom he is saying that we should weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. Your moths have eaten your clothes. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like a fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. We're all rich, and those are harsh words that apply to all of us. It's a pastor's heart with a prophetic voice, and it makes us squirm a little bit, I hope. But at the same time, we can all breathe a sigh of relief. Because James is not condemning the fact that we are rich or wealthy in and of itself. But he is warning us about the tendencies that having wealth lead us to in our lives. There's clearly a biblical perspective on wealth. Being rich is not an issue. Having money in the Bible, not an issue. If you make $1.7 billion a year, I need to talk to you after the service. One. But secondly, that's not a problem. Go ahead and make $1.7 billion a year as long as it's not illegal or immoral. The Bible has nothing to say about that. Having that kind of money is not a bad thing in and of itself. But, but what do you let the money do to you? That's the question. And wealth has a tendency to corrupt us as people, even those of us who think we can't be corrupted. And if this letter is written to Christian people and members of good standing in Christian churches then we probably need to listen carefully what James has to say. Because we are rich people. It's the love of money, Paul writes to Timothy. The love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for the money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Focusing on making money and accumulating wealth for ourselves presents some issues. And in the long run, it's really just kind of a fruitless enterprise, right? Your wealth has rotted, the moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded, James writes. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like a fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Unless we think this is James' idea, inspired by the Holy Spirit for himself, his older brother wrote something very similar in Matthew chapter 6, 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Focusing on accumulating wealth, valuing being rich just to be rich is short-sighted. Eventually, we're all going to die. We're all in that process right now. It's just a matter of time. And then what? You know, what do you do with a closet full of clothes where moss will eat and destroy? What do you do with a garage full of stuff that someone is going to have to pack up and sell at a garage sale? What do you do with everything that we have that we value so much that we think is so important to us? In the end, it all ends up in a U-Haul and being taken to new to you or some other place, right? I mean, this is what happens. Putting all of our energy into that is really a worthless enterprise. Dr. David Myers in his book, The Pursuit of Happiness, reminds us that... Um, You can't only not buy eternity, but you can't buy happiness. He's a social psychologist, and all of his, uh, you know, information is based on research that he's done or others have done. And his research shows that once we have enough money for the basics, and not what we consider to be the basics, but the basics, which basically means once we have enough money to have shelter, a place to stay every night, and food on the table, once we have that, the more money we have... It doesn't make us any happier. It's no guarantee of happiness. So having more money after food and shelter isn't automatically going to make you happy. As a matter of fact, many of the findings indicate it'll make you less happy instead of more happy. So placing all of our energy into earning more and having more isn't going to even buy happiness, let alone eternity. So one of the dangers of being rich for all of us is that we begin to think that we're self-sufficient, that we can do it on our own, that we don't need any help from anyone or anything, that we can buy everything that we need, including happiness, that we can live comfortably, and that's all that life is really all about. Listen again to what Paul writes to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world, all of us, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, right? We know about that, right? How uncertain wealth can be here today, gone tomorrow. Ever looked at your retirement account lately when the stock market goes up, 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 up? I have no control over that. But to put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command rich people to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And this day they'll lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. So when Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, he included this little phrase, Give us this day our daily bread. Which isn't meant just to be uttered by those who eke by a living and may not have enough food for the next day. That phrase in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is a reminder that everything that we have and everything that we need in life really comes from God. For all of that. And that we are only wealthy, that we are only rich, that we only get to live in DuPage County because of God's blessings to us. I mean, why wasn't I born in India? Why wasn't I born... In Ghana, 
Why wasn't I born in Haiti? Why do I get to live here? Why do I get to serve in suburban churches? Only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. And everything I have and everything that I am comes from God's hand. A couple of weeks ago at a memorial service that was held here for Raj Grunblum, a longtime member of this church, his daughter Maria Voss told us that her dad always concluded in every prayer, he always included in every prayer that he prayed, give us, Lord, what we stand in need of. And Maria told us that when she was younger, you know, you kind of think, well, what I'm standing in need of is, you know, some more clothes or some more money or a new car or we can have a better house. That's what I stand in need of right now. That's kind of your thinking at a certain point in life. And then as she grew older, she came to understand what her dad really was praying about. Give us what we stand in need of. Give us more of God's grace that we can share with other people. Give us more of God's love that we can share with other people. Give us the eyes of Jesus Christ so that we can see people as Jesus sees people. That's what we really stand in need of. We've got everything else that we need. Now, being rich can also make us callous toward other people. Look, James writes, the wages that you failed to pay the workers who who mowed your fields are, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. And you've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Apparently, some of these wealthy landowners had taken advantage of their employees and not even paid them their salary. Or maybe just paid them a little bit while they got rich and fat. But isn't this the voice that we hear sometimes of those who work in low-level jobs that make minimum wage while the corporate leaders and owners of businesses become rich off their work? Isn't this the concern that people level against companies that outsource production to nations where people who produce the products are barely paid anything? And many of them are children because they don't have child labor laws. Or isn't this what happens when those of us who live in suburban America develop generalizations about people who live in poverty or who are homeless? And we cast dispersions on people who don't work or who collect government pensions or government welfare and they should probably get a job and they should do something different. And part of what it is is that we just don't really understand how people who live in poverty have to live. There's what they call a cycle of poverty that's amazingly difficult to break. There was an article, or there is an article in this month's Chicago Magazine, which I want you to know I didn't pay for. It came free with my Chicago Tribune. There's an article about a 15-year-old kid. And and the gist of the article is this kid going to make it. Is he going to make it? In elementary school, he was a straight-A student. In junior high, he was a straight-A student. Most people who know him say he's a wonderful kid. But he lives in a, in, 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 a, in a cycle of poverty. He lives in a house with his grandparents. His grandfather is the only male in this household, along with his grandmother. And his mother and two of his siblings live in there with them, and his aunt and three other siblings live in this three-bedroom house in the city of Chicago. This 15-year-old kid shares a bed with his 17-year-old brother. And it's not a queen-size bed. This is the way they live, eking out a living, getting some subsidies on a regular basis. This kid has no way to have any money to do anything. 
And his family doesn't have any money. And so how can I contribute? How can I help? What can I do? i got to get a job. I can't get a job. I'm only 15. So he took the only job that you can find in the city when you're 15. He sold heroin on the corner. That's what happens in a cycle of poverty. Recently, we've had graduations from high school in DuPage County, right? Timothy graduated recently, York High School, Hinsdale Central. My guess is that probably, I, I, I don't know, I haven't done any research. You know, if I'm wrong, yell at me. Well, even if I'm right, you yell at me. So what difference does it make? But yell at me. That 90% of the kids that graduate from those high schools are headed to college somewhere. That's their aspiration. That's normal pattern. That's what they do. Very few don't do that. That's what's normal. But when you live in a cycle of poverty, you know what your aspiration is? To maybe live until you're 20. To not be put in prison. And you don't know anything else. This is what you've grown up with. And it's easy for us who live here to adopt an attitude about those who live in poverty and wonder why they can't do something different. We worked with a lot of people who live in poverty, believe it or not, in Traverse City, Michigan. And most people know about Traverse City. Oh, it's a great resort area. It's a beautiful lot. When I go there, it's a great vacation spot. Well, that's true. But there's a lot of people who live in poverty and who are homeless in Traverse City. We started a program that uh, provided assistance to help people pay for daycare. Because if you're making minimum wage and you're paying for daycare, you're losing money. So if we could subsidize people's daycare, they could stay employed, they could feel more valuable, they could contribute to society, they could be good and valuable workers, and employers would oftentimes contribute to this because they liked having their employees there. And I remember working with one woman who was doing everything you'd want someone to do to better, to break this cycle of poverty. She'd grown up in a cycle of poverty. She got married. They had two children. Her husband abused her. Uh, They got divorced. Shockingly, he didn't pay his child support. She was trying to support two little kids with some welfare supplement and a minimum wage job at a big box store. But she was going to college because she was going to break the cycle of poverty. She was doing everything you would want her to do. And she was doing it well. In fact, she was doing it so well that her employer gave her a 25 cent an hour raise. Now, we would be embarrassed to take a 25% raise, 25 cent raise, but she was so excited to get a 25 cent raise. You know what the 25 cent raise did for her? It put her into an income bracket where she lost all of her government subsidies. And now she didn't know what she was going to do. 25 cents an hour. Doing what you want them to do. It's easy to develop a callous attitude when you don't understand a culture or what people are going through or how they are working to better themselves. To whom much is given, much is expected. And the Bible is very clear about the responsibility of the rich to take care of those who are poor. Now being rich is a blessing. And it's very clear that that we're blessed to bless others. The question isn't whether or not we're rich. We we really aren't going to debate that because in 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 the focus of the world we are rich people. The question is really, how do you use your wealth? When you understand that everything that we have and that everything we are is a gift from God, it changes your view of everything in life. 
One of our core values at Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church is generosity. People in this church are extremely generous with their time that they give to the ministry, sharing their talents and abilities, and with the money that they have. In the Old Testament, people in this agrarian society would harvest their crops, and you harvest the best crops first, and you bring those best crops, that first 10%, that tithe of your crops, those first fruits, you brought those to the storehouse... And everybody brought their best crops to the storehouse. It was connected to the temple. And the poor and the needy would come to the storehouse and it would be distributed to them. What was happening was pooling your goods together allowed you to help a lot more people than each of us trying to do it individually. And that's exactly what happens in the church, does it not? You know, we bring our tithes and offerings, our first 10% to the storehouse. And the storehouse pools our money together and we try to contribute. So regardless of our income, when we combine forces, we're able to bless those who stand in need. We're able to support ministries like My Brother's Kitchen and Lampstand on the west side of Chicago. Because we're rich people, we've got extra winter coats. Our kids outgrow them. They can't wear them anymore. They're taking up space in a closet. We need more room in a closet to put more new winter coats in there. So we pass them on to Lampstand. Because why? Because the lampstand ministry knows kids who have never had a winter coat. Because we're rich, we can start ministries like Elmhurst Walk-In Assistance Network and Love Incorporated, where people in need can get assistance and they can be connected to resources that are available to them. Because we're rich, we can send kids from our high school youth group in this church to Honduras to work with orphans because kids are born there and people don't you know, can't raise them or take care of them, so they leave them on doorsteps and on curbs and on the church steps, and they just leave them there, and so they're orphaned. And so we can send kids from our church to there for one week. We can send them there for one week. And what it costs to send one of our kids there for one week is within a couple hundred dollars of their national average income in Honduras for a year. It kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? But we can help people who live in poverty we can give to those who stand in need. A couple of months ago, the ladies were here who make purses now. They're trying to generate their own income, start their own business. They're here learning how to do that. You know, these ladies make these purses. I was talking to some of them. Um, and and they, it takes two days to make a purse. Well, I knew that. It takes two days to make a purse, okay? You know how much they make? They can purses? $8 a day. $8 a day is their salary. Which sounds ludicrous to us, but in Honduras they're kind of like going, wow, this is great. Look at all this money we have compared to the rest of the people around him. It's all relative. You see, it's easy for us, even from our perspective, to throw stones at the uber-rich and to believe that they're callous and they lack compassion. But Warren Buffett and Bill and Melinda Gates, who are part of the uber-rich, they're always listed among the richest people in America and even in the world, have founded a group that they encourage to make the giving pledge. And the giving pledge, to qualify to make the giving pledge, in case you're interested in joining, is you have to be a billionaire, and or you have to be a billionaire if you added in the money that you'd already given away to other institutions. So if you're going to qualify, I can give you the information about how to join the giving pledge. People are signing up to give away a majority of their income when you sign up for the giving pledge. Billionaires are saying, I'm going to give away a majority of my income. Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, and his wife, Michelle Chan, 
have agreed to give away 99% of what they make over the course of their lifetime to help charitable causes. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. The same thing I thought when I first read that. Well, yeah, 99% of a billion dollars. I could afford to live off that, too. It's a rather cynical idea. But they're giving away 99% of their income. In fact, Warren Buffett's philosophy is that I don't give my kids trust funds and inheritances. They should maybe earn their own money. His kids don't like it, but that's his philosophy. You know what you call that, ladies and gentlemen? You call that general grace. I'm not real sure about the spiritual life of any of those people. I do know this, that Bill and Melinda Gates have almost eliminated malaria in some African countries because their charitable giving goes to the elimination of malaria. Somehow God has placed in their heart a generosity with their wealth. And regardless of where we fall on the wealth scale, this is exactly what God calls us to do. Being rich isn't a bad thing. As long as we remember that we're only rich because of God's blessing on our lives. That we're really not self-sufficient. And that God blesses us so that we can bless others. Let us pray. It is only right and good, O Lord, that we thank you for the lives that we have. Forgive us for taking for granted and losing perspective on the life that we've been given. Help us, O Lord, as those who have plenty, to give to those who live in need emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Before we worship with our tithes and offerings, just a reminder, uh, for those of you who might be interested, we start what we call a journey to the center of the church class on Tuesday night at 6.30. In that class, we talk about the history of our denomination, our theology, a little bit about our church and how we function. It's a great way to get to know about that three consecutive Tuesdays in a row. If you are interested and want to come, just shoot us an email. We'll make sure that we're ready for you. Um, And if you forget about that and then all of a sudden it dawns on you at 6.25 Tuesday night, you wanted to come, just show up and we'll make sure that uh, you can be a part of that group as well. Let us continue to worship God with our tithes and offerings, um, returning to him with extravagance in the same way that he's given to us.